Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 11th, 2012, and my guest is David Rose, professor of economics at the University of Missouri-St. Louis and author of The Moral Foundation of Economic Behavior. David, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you for having me. Our topic for today, we're going to talk about the ideas in your new book, The Moral Foundations of Economic Behavior. You frame the book around an interesting thought experiment to help us understand the nature of prosperity. What's that thought experiment? Well, the basic thought experiment was this. Uh, if a society's sole objective was to maximize general prosperity, and it could choose the moral beliefs of the people that comprise it, uh, what kind of moral beliefs would it pick? Uh, what would they look like? What kind of characteristics would they have? Uh, the reason for doing that is I had uh, become disenchanted with the progress that We've been making as a profession uh, on the what, what's commonly now known as the development puzzle. So I, I, I like a lot of which is well, basically, uh, you know, economics did really well uh, through the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century, working out the essential logic of the price system, and that was a huge triumph, and it was a great gift to mankind. Uh, and I think we basically got that right, uh, but. As Kuhn has pointed out, uh, when you have a, a new paradigm, at the early stages, things are great. Uh, you're able to answer a lot of questions. But over time, you start to peter out. Uh, the usefulness of the paradigm starts to peter out. And that, and that happened with the neoclassical paradigm. And uh, so what then happened? Well, in the 20th century, um, institutionalism was uh, uh, re-resurrected, I should say. It was already there to some extent. Uh, to fill in the gaps. And uh, the basic insight there was, well, uh, while there's nothing wrong with uh, neoclassical economics and our understanding of markets per se, we have to recognize that they exist in a context, that they rest on an institutional foundation, as it were. And once we did that, then a whole bunch of puzzles became uh, solvable. We were able to make some real progress uh, uh, including but not limited to uh, development economics, certainly made a lot of theoretical progress. Uh, that kind of work uh, resulted in Nobel Prizes for people like uh, Ronald Coase, um, Albert Williamson, Doug uh, and uh, Doug North. And But I would argue, though, that that has begun to lose steam. Uh, we have found that when you drop uh, institutions into less developed countries, very often... Uh, they either do nothing or they're subverted and co-opted and become uh, vehicles of opportunism themselves. So something else must be missing from the story. Uh, Barry Weingast, who's a political scientist at Stanford, has a great way of putting the problem. He said, you know, if you, if you needed a, a U.S. Constitution, and you couldn't find a copy of it, you can always go to South America because there's a ton of photocopies of it floating around in the form of their Constitution. Right. Yet, you don't get a United States down there. And 
And you can't tell the standard argument that they don't have the right kinds of uh, requisite conditions because as recently as uh, the 19th century, um, late 19th century at that, Argentina had higher per capita income than we did. So they have all the stuff that they need, and they even had, you know, uh, superficially a constitution and so on and so forth. So much of the institutional apparatus was there. And apparently there. They right. don't get what we get. It's right. apparently there. They have a court, but maybe it's not quite like ours. They have laws, but they're not – legislation right. doesn't quite work in terms of how it's enforced, et cetera. Right. So, so there's a puzzle still, which is fundamentally we don't fully understand why some countries do much better than others. And right. you're trying to fill that gap. Right. That's what got me interested in this area in a broad kind of way. So this thought experiment is to is to think about what role might moral values play in helping create prosperity. And you focus on the issue of trust in dealing with strangers in large group situations because that's necessary for uh, specialization. Is that correct? Uh, it is. Uh, the way I approached the whole thing was to say, look, if we're trying to figure out what kind of uh, moral beliefs would do the best job supporting um, the development and operation of a market system, the first thing we have to do is figure out exactly what needs to be going on to have a well-functioning market system. And that, that stuff's all well-known. Um, basically, uh, Smith is right about this. Uh, the issue of distribution is important, but it's not nearly as important as the issue of having enough stuff to divide up in the first place. And that really comes down to specialization. Uh, societies that are able to effectuate uh, dramatic specialization uh, through very, very large-scale production are those that are going to have uh, levels of productivity that are many orders of magnitude greater than than other societies. And we've known this for a long time, although it's a surprising how few younger economists are, are really aware of, of how dramatically different the level of productivity is uh, when you allow specialization. In other words, almost nobody, well, I shouldn't say almost nobody, but many economists don't have the pin factory example memorized, for example, which I, which I, which I require my principal students to do because it is such a shocking uh, increase in productivity. But be that as it may, the question then is, okay, well, that's, that's, that's what it takes to work, but now does specialization, does that present any kind of problems? Obviously, if it was really easy to effectuate tremendous gains from specialization, everybody would do it, but not everybody does do it. So what's the problem? Well, when you have dramatic specialization, uh, to, to increase the productivity like that, you um, are going to invite a problem of localized knowledge that is quite uh, similar to the local knowledge problem that was addressed by Hayek across the whole of society. Uh, as you know, Hayek argued that the price system solves a problem, and the problem that it solves is reconciling the localization of knowledge. You know, you know because we have a price system, we don't have to know what each other's doing or why. Uh, all we have to do is pay the market price, and as a result, uh, we'll pay the full social opportunity cost of using that resource. So that effectuates uh, efficient, cooper- uh, efficient coordination across the whole of society, even though we don't have to know that much about each other, because everything that we need to know is already embodied in that price. And it, you know, that was a fabulous argument. But I would argue that when you, when you look inside firms, which is where all this stuff gets created in the first place, we have a similar kind of local knowledge problem. Uh, the larger a firm is and the more complex its production is, 
the more likely it is that there are people who know things that nobody else knows or even can know. Uh, and as a result, if people in that situation are not able to take full advantage of that knowledge, we're just throwing away a tremendous amount of efficiency, and uh, much like we would be if we didn't have market prices across whole society. Yeah, that the problem within the firm there was right. there was a big fad in uh, business schools in the in the nineties. I don't know if that fad's still going. I'm not in a business school anymore, but there was a lot of there was a big fad in business schools and management generally, and in the literature in the business literature about the human the, the capital stock of knowledge within a firm. That there was a lot of specialized knowledge and localized knowledge that you're talking about embodied in the individual workers, but they. They would come and go. So how do you preserve the knowledge that the firm has at any point in time to make that more efficient uh, despite the reality of turnover? I don't know if they made much progress with that. Obviously, there's one move toward using prices within a firm. I don't think that's been terribly successful. Uh, But it's certainly true that at any point in time within any large organization, whether it's a business or a nonprofit, there's an immense amount of specialized sometimes localized, but specialized knowledge that isn't written down anywhere and it's just embodied in the heads of the people who happen to be employees at the time. And how do you get that to be used effectively is a major problem for any successful organization. Right. And that's kind of a stock concept of it, and I, and that's certainly correct. But the problem is every bit as daunting in a more of a flow sense, which Hayek would have emphasized, which is things are changing constantly. Right. The, the problems of the day today are different than yesterday, and they just come at you constantly. And the person who's in the best position to answer those questions is the one that has a great deal of localized knowledge regarding the, how a particular area of the firm works. But what I show in the book is that there's a form, or what I guess what I should say, what I introduce in the book, is that there's a form of opportunism that uh, has never really been codified in the past. and It's what I call third-degree opportunism. And that's opportunism of the form that there's an action set and other people in the firm or the firm owners or the you know CEOs, whatever, uh, may know a proper subset of that action set. But the person who's on the ground, as it were, like say a middle-level manager, knows a much larger number of actions in that action set. And if an action that is one that is profitable, but not the most profitable, is known to the person with local knowledge, but not known to the others. And and the person who possesses local knowledge knows this. He might pick an action that is good enough, but is not best. And that would not be consistent with maximizing profits, would not be consistent with efficiency. And this is a very daunting problem. I call it third-degree opportunism. It's a very daunting problem because... It's a problem that gets worse the bigger firms are, because the bigger firms are, the more specialized in knowledge, and by definition, the more likely you've got a situation in which an individual has an informational advantage over those that, that he would have to answer to or have to coordinate with. So the, now you're not pre- talking. You're not talking here about. Um, you talk about these other phenomena, which are, which I'm going to mention, which are shirking. Um, where obviously sometimes a, an employee can work. Less hard than than his boss or might know about, um, and enjoy some leisure on the job. That's not what you're talking about. Here. You're talking about a very specific kind of opportunism, right? 
Exactly. I'm talking about a form of opportunism that cuts to the very heart of whether a firm is run in entrepreneurial fashion or is run in bureaucratic fashion. And this is this is a fundamental trade-off because if you can't if you aren't able to delegate managerial responsibilities vis-a-vis what we call relational contracts. In other words, contracts that are flexible enough to give those who possess local knowledge the ability to act on it fully. If we can't do that, then we're throwing away all of the efficiency gains, what I would call Hayekian gains, uh, that would come uh, from fully exploiting localized knowledge. However, relational contracts that would confer that kind of discretion would, by definition, open themselves up to opportunistic exploitation that constitutes what Bob Frank would call a golden opportunity. And the reason why is, by definition, if nobody else can know what the optimal action is, then there's no way you can be, in a sense, caught cheating because no one else knows what the counterfactual could have been. Only you know that. So this is kind of an inescapable problem associated with the efficient use of local knowledge within firms. And I think it's a very deep problem. It's a very fundamental problem, and it cuts right to the heart of production, and it cuts right to the heart of the difference between a bureaucratically run firm and an entrepreneurial firm. But it goes beyond that. I mean, there are are so many transactions that, and you talk about this in the book, where you and I are going to have a, uh, we're going to make a deal. There's going to be a contract between us. It's not a handshake deal. There is a contract. But it's impossible for the contract to specify all the possible conditions, including uh, conditions where I might do something on behalf, on your behalf, without you being aware it's even possible uh, because you don't have that localized knowledge. And I always think when I think about these kind of problems, I'm always thinking about selling a house or buying a house where we have this unbelievably important asset being exchanged for money. And we have this unbelievable set of legal uh, paraphernalia and bells and whistles surrounding it, title and and pages after page, page after page of of contractual agreement on both sides of what we're going to do on each other's behalf. But despite all of that, we leave much of it unspecified uh, because it, it's too costly to specify everything. And more importantly, we can't anticipate everything that could happen. And so inherently, at some point, there is either trust or there's the threat of legal action, and of course, legal action is really unpleasant. So obviously, the more trust that's involved, the better it is because we avoid the complexities of, of legal action and all of its uh, costs. But but you have to trust the other person to some extent. How do you generate that trust, especially in this situation? That's the one I want to focus on because it's center of the book for the rest of the way out, which is – one of the parties knows something nobody else knows and knows that by ta- either taking an action or not taking an action, uh, good or bad will, will occur. How do you get that person to do the right thing? And if you can do that, if you can get a world where people do the right thing even when they're not observed or monitored, you can really exploit these potentials for specialization and, and trade and exchange and you won't be able to exploit them if that trust isn't there. Is that a good summary? I, I, I agree with that totally. I think that's basically correct. Um, my particular approach doesn't really view it as, well, what do we do to make that happen? Although I, I have ideas, of course. 
I, I basically am working backwards. To Sorry, yeah, what's what necessary has to for yeah. it to be true? Correct. Sorry, right. fair enough. Sure. Yeah. So let's talk. Let's turn to that. Um, what, and obviously, there are many other ways you can check uh, opportunism generally. Right? There's repeated dealings. There's reputation. There is uh, police rules, uh, monitoring of various kinds. But we're going to focus on the, the the most difficult problem to monitor, observe, et cetera, which is it's unobservable. Because that's really important to keep in the back of your mind as, as you're listening to this. Because otherwise, obviously, markets and, and societies find ways to deal with many of the problems associated with opportunism. This particular kind is special. It, it's special, uh, but it is more frequent and it is more fundamentally important than one might first suspect when one first thinks about these things. Uh, and, and part of the reason why is most of the cost is unobserved. It's, most of the cost takes the form of economic organizations that don't exist or institutions that don't exist. So I, I would argue that the preoccupation with incentive compatibility mechanisms is the result of, of kind of a survival bias. In other words, you study what's there to see, and for most humans, through most of human history, uh, what we have observed are institutions that exist to solve uh, these kinds of problems like shirking and, and so on and so forth that are pretty uh, frequent precisely because uh, being able to trust people you don't know is something that has been extremely rare through human history. It's even, it's even rare today, but if you go back um, 500 years or so, I would say it was essentially completely rare. It was just no nobody uh, had the, the kind of moral beliefs that would be required uh, to get you to a condition of genuine and gen, uh, generalized trust at the same time. So something has changed, and the part of your argument is going to be, although you don't deal with this in depth in the book, part of the argument is, is that that change helped facilitate the explosion in our standard of living. That, that's right. And actually, I'm writing another book now that deals exactly with that issue. But that, that's, a, that's a huge uh, issue all by itself. Sure. Okay, so let's, let's go back to the moral issue now, which is what's necessary to create um, behavior on the part of individuals basically to turn down, reject, and resist uh, the chances to be opportunistic when nobody's watching. So what do right, we what do we need? Well, there's a couple things that you need. Uh, number one, the person the person's predilection to be trustworthy cannot be merely an exercise in incentive compatibility, which is what most economists want to do. They want to model um, trust behavior and trustworthiness as an exercise in incentive compatibility. Ex- because explain that. Explain that. Explain what, what you mean by incentive compatibility. <clears throat> well, it's the idea that it, it's an exercise in, in, in enlightened self-interest because it's in your own best interest to behave um, in a trustworthy manner. The most common example is to say, well, markets breed, markets breed honesty and honesty breeds markets. Uh, suppose you got a guy and he has a, um, a mechanic, he's a car mechanic. Um, if he behaves in an untrustworthy way, it gets back to the customers. He has less business. If he behaves in a trustworthy way, he gets rewarded for that by virtue of having more business and so on and so forth. So that's an example of, of the kind of argument that 
most economists like to make about trust, which is, well, it's no big deal. It's easy to explain. Um, it's in your own best interest to be trustworthy anyway. Well, that's all well and good, but the problem is that if that's all there is to trust, then trust is going to fall down exactly where the word is most meaningful. Um, this is such a, an empty approach that uh, Toshio Yamagishi, uh, who's a pretty famous uh, social capital theorist and sociologist at, in Japan, uh, says this isn't even trust at all. We should call it assurance. That's all it is. Yeah, I agree. Um, and, and I don't uh, trust you. I just know that you're going to act as as if you were trustworthy. That's exactly. very n- much not the same thing. <laughs> right. And Oliver Williamson's very dismissive of a great deal of the trust uh, literature, and and he would say that this is what he would call calculative trust, which is a contradiction in terms anyway. So for for a situation in which uh, there's a genuine golden opportunity that's possible, and explain uh, explain that again. A golden opportunity is a situation in which. The person who may or may not behave in an opportunistic way uh, believes there's zero probability of being caught in any way, shape, or form. They can do it, and they can get away with it perfectly. And this terminology, I think, comes from Robert Frank, right? Yeah, Bob, I, Bob uh, Frank first introduced that phrase, I believe, in 19, uh, 1988 in the book Passions Within Reason. Okay. That's the first place I ever saw it. I'm pretty sure that's, that's, that was the first place. But you've got to be able to deal with that. Um, and so Frank's argument, and I think he was absolutely right, although he was kind of dismissed at the time, uh, was that the only way to bust out of that is for uh, trustworthiness to be based on moral taste. If, if, if it's in any way an exercise in rational behavior, uh, you're, it's not going to work for golden opportunities. So, it, so the thing that's producing a trustworthiness has to be, in a sense, pre-rational or antecedent to the rational calculation problem. So he said it had to be moral taste. It was a heretical thing to say when he said it. Uh, and uh, I think people have largely dismissed it, and I think that's been, that's been a huge mistake, but that's what they've done. So I would they, agree they that they dismissed it, has, it because economists yeah. generally don't like arguments based on taste. They prefer to use arguments based on prices, incentives, et cetera, institutions, as we talked about. But this is basically saying that you better have a taste for being good or not doing a bad thing. Uh, it better be part of your makeup to solve that. And that is an unappealing – it's an unappealing argument uh, methodologically because it's, it could be true, which is the problem. But, that's, but, that's exactly but, right. I but mean, I, but I, it's I've unappealing methodologically right. partly because you don't want to have – you don't want to be in a position – to say, well, the way we'll make the world a better place is we'll get people to be better people. And that that obviously is a big that, – that's – most economists are uncomfortable with that kind of um, logic. But that doesn't mean it's not true. Right. It could be uh, the, the true. This one's also uncomfortable with it. Um, I don't like uh, arguments uh, that are grounded in taste. Um, but nature doesn't care what we like. <laughs> uh, you know, that the explanation just is what it is. And, it, Perhaps, and if it yeah. is indeed the case that taste – uh, carry the day, then it's incumbent upon us to, to, to move forward with that as, as our working theory. Turns out things are not quite as bad as people think, and we can get circle back to this later when we talk about culture. But anyway, you're asking what uh, what do we need? Well, first of all, it needs to be taste. Well, then the question is, and that's where Bob left it. He just said, well, it's got to be taste. Uh, I pushed the ball down the field by saying, okay, well, if it's got to be taste, then the question is, what kind of moral taste, which is coming closest, you know, what kind of moral beliefs, really? And then, and then I uh, 
worked through the thought experiment to discover that, uh, well, first and foremost, if uh, the reason why you think something is wrong is because of the harm it does to other people, uh, which is, by the way, what I would call harm-based moral restraint, as I call that in the book, and, and, and that, I think, is kind of the foundation for uh, why most of us uh, are reluctant uh, to, to be opportunists. Uh, but if that's the only reason why you won't behave opportunistically is because of the harm that's done, then then the problem is if you're in a situation in which you think nobody's going to be harmed by your opportunism, uh, you'll still be opportunistic. And just think about it for a minute. That is not a big problem in very small group society. Uh, when we live in hunter-gatherer bands or small tribes, uh, the number of people involved is fairly small. So even if we don't get caught, we do know that our actions might measurably harm someone uh, that either we care about or maybe we don't care that much about them, but we do, you know, we don't want to be feeling like we hurt somebody. Yeah. By the way, we should we should mention guilt is is a lot of what we're talking about here. How oh, do absolutely. You right. Talk absolutely. talk about that just for a sec. Well, guilt is the mechanism through which all of this works, and the question is, how do you get how do you put guilt to work? And you put guilt to work by having moral values that actuate it. And the point of my book is that the actual moral values are important, but also, but, but even more important is how they're structured, because otherwise you're not going to get guilt triggered in the right sort of way. And this point about uh, small versus large, I found very interesting, because basically what you're saying is that guilt's going to be triggered by empathy. When I realize that I'm harming someone, I'm going to feel bad about that, which is, I think, a universal truth. We may differ in how much, how bad we feel about harming others. Uh, and and differ dramatically in how how we emotionally react at knowing that we've hurt someone. But the insight you have, which I really like, is that if you don't believe, you might be wrong, but if you don't believe you're hurting anyone, either because you don't perceive it or it's so small, the harm is spread out across so many people as it would be in a large group, the guilt's going to be very small. And you give the example, which I thought was very good, of a, of an, a, a false insurance claim. Or a uh, well, that's that's a good good example. So explain how that would work. Well, the basic idea is usually when we do something in a small group uh, to uh, when we behave opportunistically, somebody gets hurt and we feel guilty about it. Uh, but the greater the number of people in the group over which the cost of that harm is divided, the more likely it is that there will not be a single human being who's harmed that we can therefore empathize with and therefore sympathize with and therefore feel guilty about having harmed. Or if they are harmed, it's by such a small amount, they might not even perceive it because you make well, that point Well, you know, at well. some point, we don't even have to make that qualification. I mean, if I, if I exaggerated my income tax deductions, so I got a thousand more dollars back from the government than otherwise, uh, there's not a single person on the planet who is harmed. It, there isn't. We, we, we don't even need to quibble. We're talking about way less than a penny per person in the United States. People can't even perceive that. It's not right. even there. Right. I mean, it, noise swamps it by orders of magnitude. So no one's harmed. And that's why many people who seem to be nice guys and don't, don't seem to, seems like they would never do anything to hurt you or your family or anybody and, uh, very generous people, very good people might cheat on their taxes and that sort of thing. So or inflate we, their expense account at work or do Exactly. Anything. Exactly, and that's a fundamental problem, and it's 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 a problem everywhere. But it's a especially uh, big problem in countries outside the West. It's outside the West, if people feel like they're not hurting anybody, they really feel like they they can just do whatever they want as long as they don't get caught. So you're only left 
with incentives to combat opportunistic behavior. So what you need is, is the point of that is that harm-based moral restraint is not enough to deal with the empathy problem. And the empathy problem is fundamental because it's a problem that gets worse the larger the group size is, and you are going to be an impoverished society if you can't sustain very, very large institutions, large markets, large firms. I mean, bigness is the key. Smith is right. And getting big means that our hardwired sense of moral restraint, that being harm-based moral restraint, um, is going to fall down on the job. Because so that's a small has, group. Right. That, that's because we are indisputably a small group species. So let me just raise um, Immanuel Kant here for a second. So uh, the only thing I understand about Kant, which is I think an important thing though, <laughs> it's the only thing, is that uh, is the categorical imperative. So he says in the categorical imperative that you should take an action or avoid an action when trying to decide whether it's the right or wrong thing to do. You should imagine if everyone did it, if it was common practice rather than just you doing it. And that that's his way to solve this problem, right? So it's true that I, I always use the example, um, you know, sampling all the fruit everywhere in the, um, in the grocery or uh, – reading all the books in the bookstore while you're drinking coffee, which most people say, well, that doesn't hurt anybody. It's no big deal. And to some extent, that's true. But of course, if everyone did that instead of buying the books or, or buying the fruit, and they just ate while they were there, there wouldn't be grocery stores or bookstores. And I, I consider those immoral acts. When I tell people that, they get mad at me. But I think that's correct. Uh, and that's one way to solve the problem. But you don't, you don't, ex you don't deal with that, or do you? No, I do. Uh, in the book, I talk about the how I compare the moral foundation after I completely worked the whole position out to what other philosophers have had to say, and uh, one of them is, is Immanuel Kant. Uh, I think what Immanuel Kant was doing was he was giving uh, a rigorous voice to changes in moral beliefs that were already underway. So in other words, I, I don't think he's somebody who brought about these changes. I think he's somebody who is simply echoing them. them. Yeah. They're already in the in the culture, and right, and he's codifying it, making it rigorous. But yeah, he, I think that Kant pe people who like Kant or no Kant are going to say, "Hey, principled moral restraint, which is this thing that I'm going to say solves the empathy problem, makes a lot of sense to me." Principled moral restraint is the idea that um, I'm not going to do this particular negative moral action, uh, not because of the harm that it does, but because I believe it's wrong in and of itself. And, and and if you can if you can have even, even though even though it would benefit me even though it's in my own self interest it, right. uh, aside from the guilt right but the guilt aside it's in my say financial interest to do this it's morally right. wrong I'm not going to even though I'm not going to get caught right and when and, and many economists balk at this so, you know and I, I'm not to pick on Oliver Williamson but he and I have argued about this over the years a great deal and I would say to Oliver okay suppose you're at Seven Eleven and there's only one person working, and he has to duck in the bathroom. And suppose you knew the security camera wasn't working. So you knew with certainty you could steal the candy bar and get away with it. You're not going to steal that candy bar. I know you're not. You know you're not. And you know that I know that you're not. And it's not because, well, maybe it really is working. That's not the reason. It's just you, you don't think it's right. Right. I think that Oliver true. subscribes to principled moral restraint but doesn't realize it. Well, I think a lot of economists are uncomfortable. It comes back to my methodological point. 
I think everyone accepts that as true. Uh, there, I, 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 you know, I think there are there are economic ways of looking at that. I think as the as if the candy bar would save your child's life, um, even though it might be wrong, you're more likely to to steal it if it was rather than just to appease your uh, sugar demands for for a few minutes. So I, I'm willing to accept the idea. As well, sure, a, but there's a there's a qualitative difference between stealing the candy bar to save your child's life. And saying, I know the stealing, it was wrong, but I don't care. I'm willing to save my child's life. Exactly. Versus not believing it's even wrong in and of itself. Yeah, I, no, I agree with you. So, but, but, so that's a fundamental difference. Totally and, and agree. There's, there's examples that can tease that out. But uh, you know, anyway, I'm just we'd be I'm a lot just, more time than we have here yeah, for that. I'm just accepting the point that I that I agree with you that I think it's a um, that people do act that way. They feel that way. Uh, they refuse opportunities because they think they're wrong. They, they, um, but that economists might be uneasy about invoking that for methodological reasons. But let's sure. move on. Sure. Uh, that's right. That's, so, that's, so principal principal moral restraint is is obviously undeniably a way to solve the opportunism problem. But you have more to say about it than that. So, right. Well, it's a necessary but not sufficient condition for solving the opportunism problem because uh, it solves the empathy problem. But there's another problem. Um, even if you solve the empathy problem, the empathy but, problem meaning that you might have trouble feeling that there are actual people being hurt, or right, there, no right. one explicit, right? Right, right. So uh, even if you solve the empathy problem, you have another problem, and that problem is uh, someone could feel guilty uh, about uh, undertaking uh, a negative moral act, uh, let's say an opportunistic act. Uh, and they feel extremely guilty about it because they possess principled moral restraint. Uh, maybe somebody's hurt, maybe somebody's not. But that's beside the point in this case. But they feel guilty about it, so they have principled moral restraint. There's no issue there. But they may also feel guilty about not being able to take a positive moral act that can only be taken if the negative moral act is undertaken. So uh, this is what I call the greater good rationalization problem. Yep. And uh, it, it's a, it is really a huge problem because this is a device that many uh, advocates use uh, to rationalize their actions um, in ways that after a while we come to take as reasonable, but not so long ago we would have viewed as being patently wrong. So give an example. Well, uh, in the United States uh, today, uh, the conversation begins far downstream of whether it's legitimate for people to take uh, money from other people to solve some kind of uh, social justice kind of problem. Okay, uh, but if, I'll say if you go back to say 1870, and you said, "Hey, I got an idea. We should have the government take a bunch of money from these people and then give it to these people because these people got a lot and these people have very much." The vast majority of Americans in 1870 would have said, "Well, you can't do that." I mean, to them, it have been self-evident that. That is simply, although it would be nice to do this nice thing, that would be an inappropriate use of government power. It would just absolutely would not fly. But over time, our sense of what's normal uh, becomes a new normal. That's a, kind of a popular phrase now. And, and those kinds of things are just taken as, well, you just got to live with it, and that's the way it is. Because so at any rate, the part, greater good, and there are a whole bunch of rationalizations for why that's a good idea. Yeah. Uh, but but certainly you're right. There's only a small group of people who would view that as immoral. Right. Uh, now, yeah, correct. Right. But uh, but the greater good rationalization problem 
is a fundamental problem for trust because if if I believe that you might feel more guilty about not helping someone that you could help if you cheated me, even though you like me, I still can't trust you. I have to believe that you're the kind of person who would say, well, just because you could cheat me a little and help your nephew a lot, you don't do that sort of thing. You don't, you don't even think in those terms. That's not even on your radar screen. Um, I need to believe that about you to be able to trust you completely. In other words, to, um, to genuinely trust you because I, rash, I, I reached a rational conclusion that you're unconditionally trustworthy. Does, so, that, does that play out in the firm example? How would that play out in that example? I understand it where, let's say, uh, you're really wealthy. I'm buying some property from you. I'm going to use the property for some good cause, and I'm, I might convince myself that it's okay to cheat you, and I see that that's a pro- I accept that's right. a problem. How would that play out in the firm? Okay, suppose you're a middle manager in the firm, and you're working really hard, and you work really hard because you believe you're going to be well taken care of by the firm. You're going to get your just desserts. The firm's going to shoot straight with you. You can trust them completely. Now, you, 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 things might not work out because you might make a mistake. You may make the wrong call about this or that investment, but, but that's different. It's never because the firm might cheat you, all right, or uh, intentionally, or the firm might reach the following kind of conclusion. Uh, there, there's a, a reduction in demand for the product. They got to let some people go, if they if they let you go, you'll probably be able to find another job somewhere. You're pretty talented, blah, blah, blah. But there's this other guy who doesn't work real hard at all and not that gifted and certainly hasn't put the kind of time in that you have. But he has somebody in his family that has a pre-existing condition, and if they cut him loose, there's going to be a, you know, it could be much more difficult for him to get in health care, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so it'd be nice to be nice to that person. So in an effort to be nice to this other person, you end up being fired. Now, even if in some ultimate moral system that's the right outcome, it doesn't matter. that Your willingness to do that as the firm CEO, to me, affects my behavior and my willingness to trust you and therefore make firm-specific uh, human capital investments in your fr- in, in your firm because that could happen to me. So but that's that, a, that's a quick and dirty example. No, that's interesting. But is that is that third degree opportunism? Is that undetectable? Is that is it going to be undetectable? Well, it doesn't have to be undetectable. I mean, I'm saying that this is another this is another issue. Uh, there's a hierarchy to the arguments. I mean, they don't all have to fit in the same. They don't have to all be in the same stream of of subsets. Uh, you, know, you asked for an example. I gave you a quick and dirty one. So on that, well, let me just stick with that for a minute. Is the worry then that I, as the employee, will not? If I can't trust you. I'm not going to. I'm not going to make the investments in, in both myself and the firm that that I would otherwise make. There's losses of. There's loss of of output there. Yeah, uh, but that's really you know that is true, and that's what I said. But that's not the real point. The real point fundamentally is. I'm not able to trust because you are willing to reduce my welfare knowingly, even though it's not the appropriate thing to do by the rules of the game as we've spelled it out, because you you think there's a greater good that can be achieved by doing this to me. Okay, so that is so the basic point of this then is that because of this greater good possibility, people may do things that have negative uh 
they may violate negative uh, prohibitions because uh, because of the greater good. Yeah. And so, what do you? Have I to certainly say about feel that? like you've engaged in a negative moral act because I've lived up to the terms of the contract by by any objective reading of the contract that spells out my employment relationship to you and the other employee's employment relationship to the CEO. I shouldn't be fired. He should. Okay, so so how? So I I'm, I got cheated. But you want to find a mechanism for reducing even that? Well, that, my point is, is you 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 cannot, you will not have a social norm of unconditional trustworthiness if you don't also deal with the greater good rationalization problem. And the solution to that problem, just as principled moral restraint solves the empathy problem. Uh, a lexical primacy of the obedience of moral prohibitions over the obedience of moral exhortations solves the greater good problem. Okay, so in other words, that. there's two types of moral <laughs> statements out there. There's those that exhort us uh, to take positive moral actions, to do things that most people would say are good and right and proper. And then there's uh, uh, there are prohibitions against negative moral actions. In other words, we're, we're being... Uh, prohibited from doing things that, that, that harm or are inherently wrong and so on and so forth. If moral beliefs don't just list a bunch of moral values, but also adduce a logical structure on those values such that the obedience of moral prohibitions comes first and foremost and the obedience of moral exhortations is only meaningful in the evaluation of a person's morality if and only if they've satisfied uh, the obedience of moral prohibitions. In that case, that person will never trade uh, a greater good kind of outcome against opportunism. So you don't need to worry about being a victim of their opportunism because they felt justified in doing so because there was some kind of positive moral act that they felt morally compelled to do because in their moral belief system, that utilitarian um, comparison compels them to cheat you. You so never have to worry about that because they don't have that kind of moral belief system. They have a moral belief system that says, first, don't, don't engage in opportunism. Yeah, so this is basically the ends never justify the means. And the, exactly. the emphasis there is never. So if you know you're dealing with somebody like that, um, that would be really good because you know they. What you're saying is they wouldn't exploit you, justifying it in their mind that there's something better coming. Um, this would make politics very different. I would just say as, as oh, an absolutely. aside, as an aside. But let's. Maybe most people aren't that way, Russ. Yes. But you do know people who are that way. Uh, I do. I do. You do. I mean, you really do. And I, I think it's a good idea, partly because I think it's good to be that way. I mean, just make it an aside on something. We haven't talked about yet, uh, which is the – and this is very Smithian uh, – the role of self-deception. For me, once you open up the argument that maybe this is for the greater good, you start to go down a slippery slope of justifying what you're doing that's really for you, but you'll tell yourself, it's not for me. Of course not. It was for my right. nephew. Uh, yeah, so, I discuss that explicitly in the book. I don't remember uh, that part. Yeah, where, where, does that, where does that come in? Uh, you remember? Because I don't be remember. In- Right. It would be in the chapter on uh, duty-based moral restraint. Okay. Sorry I missed it. But anyway, that's that's to me the danger. Many, many people would argue uh, for, quote, modern morality where you take in the greater good. That is the the moral action. 
But my view is, is that that's a slippery slope. So I, I certainly right, um, right. I, I I have a, a section title something like when when uh, greater good rationalization becomes self-serving rationalization. Yeah, that's. And I give some examples of how easy it is to happen. Very concrete examples, actually. So, but I don't remember any of them off the top right. of my head. So, but but that's okay. We all understand that. So so right. the what you're let's let, let's summarize here because it's we've gotten into some interesting complicated stuff. Let me try to see if I know where we're at, which is. If we could live in a world where we knew that that everyone believed that the end never justifies the means, we would live in a world where we would know that the person that you're on the other side of the transaction, whether it was within a firm or across firms in exchange or with strangers, especially with strangers, that we could trust them. And that would allow us to engage in transactions we otherwise either couldn't engage in or only engage in at great cost because of the other ways we def- we try to solve that problem. And, and we're saying there's some that could not be solved in any other way. Right. Those would be the golden opportunity ones. Right, but that but you're only half right. What am I missing? Well, uh, you have to have both principled moral restraint and greater good rationalization to get uh, solve the greater good rationalization problem at the same time to produce a condition of duty-based moral restraint. Because a person... Let's go to the let's go to the greater good rationalization problem. Okay, mm-hmm. suppose by doing a particular thing that's a negative moral act, you know, on paper, I can do this wonderful thing. Okay, mm-hmm. that's the greater good rationalization problem. But if I don't possess principled moral restraint, even if I possess greater good rationalization, even if I even if I possess lexical primacy, okay, so I'm not subject to greater good rationalization. If I don't possess uh, principled moral restraint. That action that I would have to undertake in order to facilitate the positive moral act won't be regarded as a negative moral act if nobody gets harmed. Correct. So, Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, so, so you both still of need, them have okay. to be in play in order to have duty-based moral restraint. And then duty-based moral restraint is not even enough uh, to, to uh, give us the moral foundation. Uh, but uh, I, I figured we would wander to the next stage uh, Go ahead. of your own accord. So, so – my at this point, I didn't feel this way when I was reading the book. But at this point in the conversation, I'm starting to think this is hopeless. <laughs> you know, this is too high a level of moral um, uh, foundation that to, to accept to expect in our fellow citizens. Mm-hmm. Actually, that that's something I talk about explicitly in the book. Um, there's a new movement in in our society. Uh, it's a it's a cottage industry in character and morals education of children, and I'm sure you've seen some of this in your own life. If you oh, talk yeah. to people in public schools, so on and so forth, they'll have these character moral education programs. And what you'll find is people who teach in these programs um, create the impression in children's minds that. Moral dilemmas are everywhere. Everything is complex and hard, and 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 there's there's no such thing as black and white. Everything is a shade of gray. And right. the you only buy, way you, you can buy be a moral an apple. Person, you buy an apple. You buy an apple, and it's from New Zealand, and you've killed the planet. You know that, that's right. the yeah. right. So, you better study it. You better look at it. Good luck. <laughs> right, right, and and they make these arguments that um, people like Dave Rose and and Russ Roberts. Uh, are unsophisticated and incapable of sufficiently nuanced reasoning uh, in order to be a truly moral person. My response to that is utter nonsense. Um, the pro- 
problem is what they are doing is they're, they have an implicit theory of morality that's actually very, very old. Uh, it is just rank act utilitarianism. Uh, it's a perfectly good approach uh, to morality if you live in a very small group. Uh, it gives you the most efficient outcomes in a small group. No doubt about it. And that's what you're hardwired to believe. And that's why they have such an easy time persuading people that they're right, because you're persuading, you're trying to persuade people of a particular type of moral belief system that they're hardwired to already be ready to, to, to be receptive to. Yeah, because it's small. The problem thing. is that type, all of these nuanced, uh, analyses and all of these exceptions and, and so on and so forth and conundrums that they have are the result of bringing a knife to a gunfight. They, they, they're, they're taking a very small group sense of morality and moral beliefs and applying it to the complex modern world. Now, what I would say, the moral foundation is a much more complex set of moral beliefs, but people don't have to know the theory behind the set of beliefs in order to abide by the beliefs. Let me give you a simple illustration that I did in the book about this. Uh, suppose you had a, a guy who was a mechanic, and this mechanic uh, had a set of tools, and the set of tools was like a, a little kid's craftsman starter set. Mm-hmm. But he's working on a 2010 uh, Honda Accord. Well, there's going to be some real problems because advanced engines are very complex, and they require many specialized tools and so on and so forth. So as a result... The only way you're going to get that car repaired is if the mechanic is extremely smart, clever, and creative, and we know with band-aids and duct tape can somehow get these tools to get the job done because the tools are not up to the job. The tools are simple, and therefore it requires a very brilliant and thoughtful mechanic to deal with the complex car. Now, instead, suppose you had a guy who... Uh, was trying to repair the same car, same repair, but he has the full complement of of tools that are provided by the factory, really advanced stuff, lasers, and you name it, got the whole nine yards. It would be a mistake to infer that the car is not complex because it's so easily repaired by the appropriate tools, just as it is a mistake to assume that the the, 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 the fundamental problem is these people are basically making the argument, and you bas- basically are making the argument, that the moral theory is too complex. But what I would argue is actually what's going on is their theory is simple and it's complied to a complex situation. This theory is adequately nuanced itself to deal with the very society that it gave rise to. So as a result, the actual execution of the theory is actually quite simple. In other words, the rules of thumb one needs to abide by in order to abide by the moral foundation are actually very, very, very simple. The fact that the demonstration of the theory works has nothing to do with the execution of it. So this comes back to um, my philosophy professor, uh, Dr. Smythe, who in trying to summarize pragmatism and, and the thought of Charles Peirce, and it's a very Hayekian insight, uh, the way he summed up one aspect of it was your grandmother is right, meaning your grandmother has a bunch of rules of thumb about right and wrong. Uh, don't do this, do this, don't do that. And if you ask her why, why not, 
she doesn't have an explanation. She just says, well, that's just the way it's always been, and that's the right things. Um, you're suggesting that if we live that way, uh, or that the fact that we have lived that way for a long time is part of the reason we're so successful as a culture and as an economy. Yeah, and, and in that way, what is required to live that way doesn't require 20 hours of schooling. It's, I mean, it requires, it requires many years of continuous reinforcement in order to build the character to, to produce the moral conviction behind the beliefs. But the beliefs themselves are pretty simple. I mean, it's pretty simple. Don't do stuff. Don't do moral, uh, don't do negative moral actions. Okay? Just don't do them. And just because nobody gets hurt, that doesn't mean you can do it either. Because it's not about the person who's getting hurt or not hurt. It's about you. When if, if, if you steal, even though nobody gets hurt, you're still a thief. So don't do it, period. Don't even consider it. Don't even run it up the flagpole. That's not that complicated. And then secondly, if somebody says to you, you should do something that you know is wrong, but it's okay to do it because there's this other good thing over here that you can make happen if you do this, you need to realize that that is... Of the language of a charlatan, that that is inappropriate. You're being sucked in. We don't do things like that. Well, Ever. some of us, some of us try to raise our children that way. Some of us presumably uh, do not. Uh, but let's let's move away from the morality. We only have a, a little time left, and let's talk about the implications for growth, development, and our standard of living. If, if this is correct, and much of it seems correct to me, what you, there's two implications. One is societies. Cultures that have that have successfully inculcated uh, the view that stealing is just wrong. Don't do it. Don't be. Don't ever. You never want to perceive yourself as a thief. And that's either done through religion or through cultural other other cultural means. Those societies are find it easier to specialize and grow. Uh, societies that don't inculcate that or haven't. Again, there's no thing called society that tries to, but societies that have individuals who have not adopted those beliefs are going to find it much more difficult to uh, grow and to be successful because specialization and exchange in large groups is going to be much more difficult. So my, my, what I want to close with here are, are two questions. Question number one, what's the evidence that this is true? It has an appealing casual – truth to it, might there be some specific evidence that it's true? And the second question I would have is, it seems to me, and we've talked about this informally in the last few minutes, that there's been an erosion of that uh, moral imperative in the United States, at least, over the last 30 or 40 years. Do you think that's true? And do you see any signs that it might make a difference in, in how we behave toward each other? Well, as far as evidence, uh, we do have um, em empirical work on trust and measured trust across the country, I mean, across the world. And measured levels of trust do co-vary well with economic performance and quality, general quality of life uh, in societies. So that suggests that however it is they're able to achieve this trust, uh, if they can, it does pay off. And so that doesn't cinch the argument, but it's certainly consistent with the kind of evidence that we would need to see. Yeah. Aren't there people who've done experiments? This just um, reminds me of these experiments where 
you know, you, you take a wallet, uh, you leave a wallet in the middle of the street. And in some cultures, you find a wallet that isn't yours. You stuff it in your pocket as quick as you can and hope no, and, and if nobody's looking and nobody notices and nobody says, hey, what do you got there? Uh, you just keep walking and you take the money when you get home and you dump the rest in the garbage. But there are other cultures, and we know this happens in, in many cultures, where people find that wallet and they return it to a stranger. Right. With the money in it. Right. And and the we all know, if, if a person was asked to come up with a list of societies that they think most people would act the latter way, they'd probably be right. Uh, their preconceived notions are basically right. And most of those societies are well-developed and prosperous societies. But my point my point gets behind that point. My point is, is well, in order to get to that condition, moral beliefs have to have a, per, a particular kind of structure. If they don't have that kind of structure, you won't have the unconditional trustworthiness, and then you therefore won't have an environment of trust because it will be unsustainable. Uh, people, people will not extend trust if they're continuously punished for doing so. If it's not rational to extend trust, they won't. You feel like a sucker, and after a while, you'd rather not be a sucker. Uh, now, I forgot the second question. So the second question was, uh, is, do, you, uh, do you sense an erosion in, in these attitudes in, in Western civilization and Western society? And one thing you might think about, we might talk about is uh, where do those views come from? Do they come from folk wisdom? Do they come from religion? Um, does it matter? And um, where are we headed? Right. Well, um, Robert Putnam uh, has documented a pretty much across-the-board reduction in measured levels of trust. Uh, he's focused on on uh, social capital, but he does measure trust directly. Uh, Eric Uslander has also done this, and uh, from 1950 until the present, uh, it, it's pretty grim. And it, it, I'm talking about in the United States, it, the downward slope is clear. Uh, Measured level of trust and trustworthiness are both going down through time. So, so I have a question. Sorry, I'm just going to interject. I don't believe in the great stagnation, uh, which you know, I interviewed Tyler Cowen on this program about it. But uh, this could be an underlying cause of that if you believe that. I don't think that's true. But I, it does raise the question. Of, we've been a pretty successful economic society since 1950. So it's you have to explain, despite that erosion, why we've done so well as large-scale specialization and large organizations. Well, Adam Smith once said there's a lot of ruin in a nation. Yeah, true. <laughs> and uh, uh, Charles Murray has made an argument uh, uh, kind of similar to this, that in Scandinavia, uh, things are moving in the wrong direction, but they've built up a huge cult, uh, huge pile of cultural capital. And it's going to take a while. They're going to have to make a lot of withdrawals from their cultural capital account before you get close to the margin. But uh, in my view, uh, this reduction in uh, measured trust uh, does comport well with changes in moral beliefs uh, that, have, that in our country, uh, I've detected it over the course of my own life, the kinds of uh, things that people would say, um, say now or say five years ago, that would have been laughable even when I was a kid. Let me give you a quick and dirty example. Uh, when uh, Jesse Jackson was caught uh, moving funds from the Rainbow Coalition that he directed uh, to a woman that uh, he had impregnated and so on and so forth. And, and when he was caught dead to right, there was absolutely no you know, way of defending the behavior. He got, he got nailed. 
Um, many people said, well, yeah, but you got to look at the whole picture and all the good he's done and so on and so forth and you know, cut him a break and so on and so forth. Uh, I really do believe in 1950, if somebody had said that publicly, they'd have just been laughed at by virtually everyone. Are you kidding me? The guy basically engaged in overt fraud. Yeah, I don't uh, know. It's an interesting oh, thing. I, I There's an immense... See, here's This is part of the challenge of this kind of research agenda and I, I don't um I don't say this as a criticism really because I think what you're trying to do is is extremely ambitious and it's very interesting. But um there's still a remarkable amount of moral um sanction and shaming and and other activities for people who who are fraudulent um or who cheat. And just look at baseball. Uh, very, very few people say, well, it's not, I, I, you know, there's there's some variance on how people respond to the steroid issue, but so many people just say, well, they cheated. It's wrong. End of story. Well, everyone else was doing it. Doesn't matter. It was wrong. Well, they didn't really enforce it. Doesn't matter. It was wrong. Uh, it just. Uh, you're I, conflating two very different functions of the brain, though. You're conflating conviction born of a deep belief with a habit of mind that are, are you familiar with Kohlberg's stages of development and more reason? Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't, people, I don't like them, but I right. But, but many people who are just very, very mechanical about their moral beliefs really are just, they truly are behaving in a kind of simple minded way. Well, well, that's cheating. Well, but it's cheating. Yeah. But yeah, but what if, no, it's just cheating. Well, that that's observationally equivalent between the idea of having somebody who abides by the moral foundation in a self-aware way and it's unyielding and has deep conviction to the possibility that a person is just once they know the rule that whatever the rule is and for whatever reason it is what it is they accept it and they just simply employ it. Yeah. So I, I think that that's. Let me give you let me give you a counterexample of what you're talking about. Okay. Uh, there's been numerous studies of high school students and college students cheating in college and, and, and in high school. And this has been looked at over and over and over again. Uh, the amount of cheating going on uh, has never been zero, of course, but yeah. it has gone up dramatically in the last 25 years. Moreover, when in the past, when you ask students why they cheated um, and they explained why they cheated, they never almost never excused the cheating or they never downplayed uh, the moral well the moral import of it they would say it was wrong but they had to do it um, well that's not new today though increasingly and in fact I don't remember the exact proportion but it's a shockingly high proportion of of course most of them most of them report cheating at least once and a very shockingly high proportion of those who report cheating at least once say, what's the big deal? This is just not a big deal. In other words, they make an argument that is very consistent with the absence of principled moral restraint. Because their argument is, you know what? Okay, so I cheated. So what? Who got hurt? Nobody got hurt. Yeah. I mean, I didn't take anything from anybody. Nobody's worse off. Teacher's not worse off. I'm certainly not worse off. Nobody else in the class is worse off. What difference does it make? And the answer, of course, is at that margin... It makes no difference at all. That is correct. But my point is that it's indicative of a shift 
and moral beliefs themselves, the very, the very way we organize our, our thoughts. And it, it, it's very frightening. So, but you're suggesting that that, what your book suggests is that this, uh, change in our view of what is right and wrong, assuming that is really actually happening. And I'm, I think it could be right, uh, is going to affect our economic activity because of the change in trust. Well, yeah, and I I think it already has to some extent. Um, you know, look at the look at the kinds of loan behavior that was going on in the financial crisis. Um, I I have I know people in the real estate business, both in in the mortgage side of it and in the house sale side of it, and it it was just amazing what was going on. Many people knew what was going on was wrong. Oh, for sure, and they, they felt- just shouldn't be doing it. But they thought, well. You know, nobody's dying because I'm doing it. Everybody else is doing it. Ah, come on. Well, or that the what, that the ultimate people who are going to pay for this are either it's going to be spread out among a large group. It's a corporation that's going to lose the money, or it might be taxpayers. But uh, in fact, it's good because I'm putting a person in a house who right. I'm thinking. I don't know if you're thinking this. I'm thinking about the person who who convinces somebody to take out a loan uh, doesn't require the documentation that would be necessary or the credit rating and just says both parties wink and say, Hey, this is, this is good. And that, and that con worked okay. And almost nobody ever got hurt as long as all the house prices kept going up because people could always, the, the standard argument was, well, worst comes to worst. You can't handle it. You sell it. Yeah. What's the big deal? So the fundamental prices question go down and there's a big deal. Again, the fundamental question for the usefulness of this approach is, uh, of course, these kind of things happened in the past. The question is, if people change the way they feel about them, did they did they feel differently about this in 1880 and 1920 and 1960 versus today? And the answer is, interestingly, may, maybe. I don't know. Well, there's techniques. There's tricks for figuring. Well, obviously, we can't go far, too far back, but there's tricks to teasing out these things. And uh, with survey data that matches up to trust experiment data, and I'm working with um, some economists uh, around the world uh, to uh, develop variations on well-known trust experiments uh, that can be put together with data that's generated from self-report information about how people feel about various kinds of moral statements, and they order them and categorize them. And if the, what we can do is we can infer from how they would categorize these things in a, in a survey instrument uh, we can infer how close they would come to the moral foundation, and then we can match that up to how they performed in the trust experiment and see if, indeed, people who uh, give us self-reported uh, information about how they value things relative to one another uh, and, and therefore, are, are, are have moral beliefs that comport with moral foundation actually are more trustworthy. Let me ask you about one more empirical uh, possibility. Some economists um, have been surprised over time at the way people behave in various experimental games that economists and psychologists have created, dividing the pie, other ultimatum game, uh, that people didn't – I always like this – that people didn't behave rationally is the, is the claim. And you know, then there have been attempts to understand why, why they did or what was really going on, what people were thinking. And it's obvious that – what, to me, at least, that one of the reasons people don't behave the way narrow-minded self-interest would predict is that people aren't narrow-mindedly self-interested. They're not going to enjoy hurting somebody else or taking money from them, and they might feel guilty about it. Um, I assume those experiments – I don't follow that literature closely. I assume 
that those experiments have been done outside of the uh, the United States and, and Western Europe and other. Well, there's a cottage industry in doing those experiments outside the United States, and, and just as you might suspect. There's a great deal of variation depending upon uh, where you are and how those experiments work out. But I, I have two reactions to those experiments, and I, and I do talk about that in the book fairly extensively. Um, point number one, most experiments, in fact, all that I know of, I, I don't know of any exceptions, but let's just say most to be safe. Most experiments are inherently framed in a small group context. You're playing a game against another person or a game against two other people or a game against all the other students in the classroom. Okay, so we're usually, it's very rare that an economic experiment in a trust game involves more than 25 people. Yep. Very, very rare. Good point. So we're already in a small group situation. That frames the issue in a small group way and therefore actuates all of our small group mental modules. So it doesn't tell us anything about large group trust. So that's that's one fundamental problem with experiments. This is something that can be fixed. It's not a big deal to change it, but nobody's even known to ask to even try. Well, we're, I'm going to help people figure out how to do that to test these other hypotheses. The other issue is when people behave in a way that's too generous, too trustworthy, too kind uh, to be rational, according to what an economist would say. There's two possibilities. One is is that there's some kind of moral guideposts that's affecting their behavior. They're not just playing the game just for the sake of the game. That's, that's certainly true. But even if that weren't true, there's another problem um, that uh, I call uh, a reluctance. Well, basically, that a person has an aversion to false positive golden opportunities. I mean, it seems to me that we are hardwired, that we should be hardwired, to uh, be suspicious of what appear to be golden opportunities. You know, some, suppose you sit down and you play a game and a guy says, well, all right, here's the game, here's how it works, blah, blah, blah. So what are you going to do? Well, you're an economist, but even if you weren't, you might think to yourself, you know what? Who's to say there's not going to be another level to this game where they're going to take how I played now Yeah, it's true. into consideration? So I don't know if I'm going to go all the way with this. Yeah, and no matter what they say, you don't believe them. Yeah. So, and I do think that it's the mark of maturity and careful thought to be incredulous about things that appear to be golden opportunities. Well, I don't know. We like free lunches, but because uh, that, that's what a golden opportunity is—is is a variant on a free lunch. But uh, we do have a we do have a uh, a taste for free lunches. I think. But we have a taste for free lunches, but only if they really are free. It's true. My guest today has been David Rose. David, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Well, thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.